The opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the Tippecanoe County Partnership for Water Quality or its partnering organizations. For more information on the TCPWQ and its work, visit our website at tcpwq.org. The TCPWQ presents Rain, Drains, and Bioswales, a podcast dedicated to educating the community on water quality issues. In this episode, I interviewed Jenna Parks Freeman, interpretive naturalist at Prophetstown State Park. I work with Jenna on the TICT Education Committee, and that stands for Tippecanoe Invasive Cooperative Task Force. Jenna is an awesome educator with a passion for nature. She shares about her job, the history of Indiana's youngest state park, and ways you can enjoy it. Jenna is cool with a capital C. Here's our interview. Could you introduce yourself and share where you're from? So I'm Jenna Parks Freeman. I'm an interpretive naturalist. I work for Indiana State Parks at Prophetstown State Park, and I grew up in Speedway, Indiana. Speedway. There's a racetrack there. There is. That's what most people know it for. I've been there. Yes. They usually think that's Indianapolis because it's called the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, but it's actually its own town that was built around the racetrack. So I, I grew up with the, yeah, the IMS in my backyard. Sweet. Yeah. Uh, can you tell about your role as interpretive naturalist at Prophetstown State Park and what it's like day to day? I usually like to tell people, uh, I like to define what an interpretive naturalist is because I think a lot of people are unfamiliar with that term. People may be more familiar with like a park ranger, but mm-hmm. an interpretive naturalist is just what we call a particular role within Indiana State Parks. So in the way that an interpreter interprets a language for somebody to understand, our role is interpreting nature, the environment, and history of a particular place in a way that people can understand. So it's very similar to a language interpreter, but just with different subject matter. We're not interpreting language, we interpret a space. So I do uh, a lot of different things at Prophetstown. It's hard to narrow it down. But uh, again, for the general public, I often say like, well, if you visit a state park or a national park and you go on a, a guided hike or a tour, the person leading that is like an interpretive naturalist. So my staff and I do um, our field trips at the park. So we get a lot of kids in spring and fall who come out to learn about the history of Prophetstown or learn about critters and habitats. And then um, we do public programs. So April through October, every Saturday and Sunday, we have public programs. Uh, We have a public program on Friday now as well. So we do Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays. We have something that is open to the public to come and uh, learn a little extra about Prophetstown or the, the features of Prophetstown State Park. And then I have kind of my other duties as assigned. So part of my job at Prophetstown involves uh, taking care of our educational ambassador animals. We've got snakes, turtles, frogs, fish that we keep for educational purposes. Um, I help with um, special events and things like that that take place at the park and one of the big activities is I work in our greenhouse so we have um, two greenhouses where we grow native plants every year and we supply native plants uh, to all of our other Indiana state parks (coughs) we also supply them locally so people can come to our greenhouse and shop uh, during our plant sale and then we use the majority of the plants for our own restoration efforts at Prophetstown. So I oversee the ordering for seeds and materials and starting the seeds in um, January, February, and then planting. We get a bunch of people out like yourself to come and help us plant because there's so many plants. I could never do it alone as we grow between 20,000 and 40,000 plants every year. And it's usually 
just me kind of working in the greenhouse. So we love our volunteers to help out with that. We do a planting the week of Valentine's Day. So we just have like a Tuesday through Saturday, come on out and plant some seeds with us. And uh, then we do a public plant sale in May around Mother's Day. So it's kind of the first half of my year is really wrapped up like December through May. It's like really intense greenhouse season, but it's fun. I like that part of the job too. So those are some pretty typical things. There's always the one-off, like somebody will find a snake on their campsite and we have to go help with that. Or, you know, the occasional scrubbing the toilet or mopping the floor, all those things happen. So every day is different. It's really hard for me to say like, yeah, it was a typical day in the life because I just come to work and we see what's gonna happen, which is fun. Yeah. Um, what led you to pursue a career as an interpretive naturalist, and how did you end up at Prophetstown? I grew up visiting a lot of state and national parks, and I grew up really close to Eagle Creek Park in Indianapolis. So I spent a lot of time outdoors, whether with family or just personally, and um, especially Eagle Creek Park. I was always asking the naturalist questions, trying to figure out um, different things about the animals they were working with or the plants they were talking about. And I was kind of obnoxious. I'm sure I was obnoxious. Um, they were really good sports. They let me ask all these questions and just um, pick their brains and fill their day. Um, so I really had an interest early on in the outdoors. I can remember as a kid, I would uh, dig up worms in the backyard. We had a bucket of worms. We'd be climbing trees. I was just outside a lot. Really felt connected outside and enjoyed playing outside and being outside. And always liked animals. Always was interested in plants. I would garden with my mom when I was younger. So seeing naturalists at Eagle Creek Park and at other places I visited, was really cool because I was like wow you can do this as a job like you can continue to be fascinated by like worms and critters and plants and history and you can tell other people how they can be fascinated about those things as well so when I was 13 I was like I'm working in a park that's my career path I'm going to be doing that which is really unique it's very strange that as a teen you're like yep I got it figured out and you stick with it but for me that was my calling, my passion, and I was really lucky that I was able to pursue a lot of experiences really early on because I made that decision at a young age. So I was able to get a lot of exposure to the career field and had a lot of different jobs and um, worked around at governmental sites and non-governmental sites and just got a lot of opportunities, whether it was working or volunteering, to really see what would be a good fit. And uh, when I was getting ready to graduate, so I went to Southern Illinois University in Carbondale. So it's way down in the Shawnee National Forest portion of Illinois. Not a place that a lot of people are super familiar with, but it's beautiful, um, very wooded, um, canyons, a lot of hiking down there, a lot of camping opportunity. It was a really great place to go to school, and I studied forestry there with a specialization in wildlife habitat and management, or wildlife habitat management and conservation. So I studied kind of adjacent to naturalist work because there aren't very many colleges that offer like a naturalist or an interpretation-based program. So I thought, well, I'll get the science part of it and use that to help me um, continue being an interpreter. So I went there and when I was getting ready to graduate, there was a position open with Indiana State Parks. My dad at the time worked for the state of Indiana in the Indiana Department of Environmental Management as an air quality manager. And so he would often see jobs. And of course, with a child graduating from college, was any parents hope that you're going to get a job? So he was like, hey, there's a posting for Prophetstown State Park. And I had actually visited Prophetstown State Park with my family when I was younger, um, just shortly after it opened or a couple years after it opened. So I knew about Prophetstown. I knew it was kind of a different state park, 
but I thought that was cool. And so I was like, yeah, you know, I'll apply for it. Like, I probably won't get it. We'll see what happens, you know. So I applied for it, and I got an interview, and they hired me. And here I am, five years later, I'm still at Profits too. So, cool journey. It's nice. <laughs> yes. What are some of the most memorable experiences you've had while working at the park? <laughs> Which ones can I talk about? Let's see. <laughs> um, I can think of a couple. There, yeah, let's let's do a couple. So I've I have worked through COVID, uh, which we all know is a really fascinating time. But during that time, a lot of people in my job field were trying to figure out how do we connect with people when we can't be with people, right? We have to socially distance. Um, but we also knew a lot of people were coming out and connecting with our parks, but we couldn't necessarily go out and interact with them just because we needed to socially distance and keep everybody safe and healthy. So we had to um, very quickly figure out how to adapt things uh, where we had a virtual platform and could do programming that way. So that was a really memorable time in taking, uh, like I had a, a preschool program that um, we met one week and then like that Friday, they were like, shut it down, we can't do it anymore. And I already had kids who were signed up to come to my next week's pre-K that had just seen me a couple days ago. So I pivoted and it was like, I don't wanna leave those kids high and dry, so I'm gonna make a virtual program. We're gonna make a video, we're gonna put it on Facebook and we're gonna keep doing this so that we still have this connection with people and can maintain those relationships and not lose them. That was a really memorable time because it was a lot of figuring out how to do things. So filming videos on your own, um, editing them and getting them uploaded and captioned and shared at the right time so people would see it and interact with it. And then we also developed like emailed activities so people could sign up and we have additional things they could print out and do at home that would relate to what they were learning about in the videos. And it was a really fascinating time because my partner, fortunately, does video work professionally. Nice. So I was really lucky that I had somebody who could kind of help me figure out some of it and do some of the work for me since I'm not at all skilled in those technical areas and didn't really know how to edit something together to make it make sense and take out the crazy parts where I stutter over my words and, you know, just not the most pristine parts of the video. So that was a really interesting time for many interpreters figuring out how to adapt really quickly. Um, I'm glad that we are back to face-to-face -to -face programming. I think at some point in my career, I'd like to get back into virtual programming, but I need to take a break from it right now because it consumed my life for many months. So that was a memorable time. Um, other memorable experiences. We have had some really fascinating experiences with critters. So one thing I can think of is we used to have an environmental education ambassador snake who, uh, she was a hognose snake. And hognoses are really common in wetland areas. So we do have them at the park. They're non-venomous, but they kind of look like a venomous snake. I should say they're mostly non-venomous to humans. They do have a venom that affects frogs and toads, but it doesn't really harm people in the same way. Uh, so they, they get a bad rap because people think like, oh, that's this big, scary snake. It can kind of flatten itself out. It looks like it'd be dangerous. But they're a lot of bark and no bite. Not really known for being super aggressive, but they'll act like they are and be very dramatic. So they're super dramatic snakes. Um, so when we had her as an educational animal, um, we had to go and get her food for her. 
So she exclusively, hog, hognose snakes um, pretty much exclusively eat frogs and toads. Their bodies don't process hair very well. Uh, so they're designed to eat frogs and toads. They have special mouths to eat frogs and toads and the special toad venom to help them consume these critters. So we would have to go and catch um, food for her. And um, that would be really interesting sometimes because of course you want to be careful and not over harvest anything. Um, but we'd have some years that there would be a ton of frogs and toads at the park and that we'd be able to get plenty of food for her to eat. And other years where it was not so hot. Um, so one year we had like a really big boom of frogs and toads. And I remember um, getting out of the car because we found like a really hot spot for frogs and toads. We were just driving from another program and we didn't have anything to put the frogs and toads in. So we just started putting them in our pockets. And when we came back to the office, we were like unloading a bunch of frogs into a big old bucket uh, to get them ready for um, we, we kind of put them to sleep so that it's not like a painful process for them we just um, let them go into like a little brumation mode and then we prepare them for for food so it's not like a painful process for the frog or the toad they just kind of go to sleep and then they get eaten but it's a really interesting thing to talk about with people because a lot of people have no feelings about other animals getting eaten, but it's part of the circle of life and it's what our critters are doing naturally out in their environment. So our hognose snake, she was about eight or nine years old before she passed away, which is pretty old and she ate very well. So she had a hearty supply. Nice. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it was funny. How do you engage visitors and create meaningful connections? I guess you were just talking about that between people and nature during your interpretive programs. I'll answer that in kind of two parts. Obviously interpreting nature is a big part of what I do. And so if you can make connections with your visitors and guests to get them to think about a particular animals experience or what an animal's day-to-day -day looks like for them um, it can kind of open people's thoughts so a lot of people like with the hognose snake example a lot of people have feelings about snakes strong feelings about snakes mm -hmm. whether they're positive or negative or kind of somewhere in between and what we try to do is offer people the opportunity to have a positive experience with an animal like a snake so that they can see not all animals are vicious. Not all animals want to bite you. Not all animals are venomous. They have a role that they perform in our habitats and ecosystems. That's important too just like we have a role that we perform in our day-to-day -day lives with jobs and families and things like that. So just because we might have a particular feeling or notion about an animal doesn't mean that it is less than us or less than another creature. So trying to provide people with positive opportunities to interact with that animal and to see that it's not really all that different from how we interact with maybe cats and dogs, but we're really comfortable living in the same house as a cat or dog. But maybe if you see a snake, you'd say, no thanks, I'm out of here. They're just wild animals. They're trying to do their thing and mind their business. Um, most of them don't want to have interactions with people and they're going to save up as much energy as they can to just coexist um, on their own. So getting people to recognize that different critters have a role in the environment, especially critters that sometimes go unloved is really important. We also try to educate with animals specifically about um, how some animals don't make good pets or have particular rules and regulations regarding um, their collection and care. So we try to stress that kind of information to people um, so that they are well informed if they see an animal in the wild, they don't think, oh, great, this makes a great future pet. Uh, specifically, I'm thinking about turtles, for example. So 
we have a lot of problems with people taking turtles from the wild and keeping them as pets but those folks don't always realize that turtles can live for like 50 to 80 years it's a huge commitment for a pet very different from a cat or dog and uh, all the turtles that we keep at Prophetstown State Park as education ambassadors were former pets that people decided they could no longer take care of. Um, so all of our state parks are pretty much maxed out on turtles right now because we all have these kind of hand-me-down pets that can't be re-released into the wild. Um, so we try to educate people about that and say, like, think about it first. Like, they're great to look at, but if it's in the wild, we should probably leave it in the wild let it continue living out its life. So educating about animals is one part of it. Educating about habitats is another. So at Prophetstown State Park, we are a prairie park. We've got a lot of grasses and wildflowers. And for Indiana State Parks anyway, that's very different. Most of our other Indiana State Parks are forested pretty densely, have a lot of shade and cover. Prophetstown is not that way. We do have trees, we do have some forested trails, but our primary habitat is prairie. Not a lot of folks living in Indiana realize that prairie is a natural habitat for this northwest central portion of the state. So we try to connect people and show them that, yeah, it can be hot out here, it can be in full sun, but check out these beautiful wildflowers that are growing. Let's take a peek at the hummingbirds that are drinking from these flowers and the bees that are going by and visiting uh, these different plants and talk about why they're important too. Because without the bees, we wouldn't have a lot of our agricultural crops. We wouldn't be able to eat the same variety of foods that we eat today. But getting people to recognize that prairies are historic and natural as part of the state uh, also involves immer immersion, getting people out into those habitats to see their beauty and helping um, interpret and break down what those habitats look like is important. And then I guess this will be a three-part answer. The other aspect of what I do has to do with history and interpreting history. We talk a lot about the um, native groups that started the Prophetstown Settlement, which Prophetstown State Park is named after. And what we like to do in interpreting that history is get people to think about how we are all human. We all have needs. We all need space to live. We all need food, water, shelter, space. Those are common denominators, even for critters. All living things need those um, things to survive. So interpreting history, we try to get folks to think about how they would feel and how they would react if they were living through similar times or similar situations and think about the emotions and the choices that they might make if um, they were living through a particular experience. A lot of times people try to separate themselves from history, I think, and saying like, well, that was 100 years ago or 200 years ago. But not that much has changed. We're all still people. We also have a lot of the same feelings and emotions and similar problems to what people had, you know, 200, 300 years ago. We've just developed some more technology to help us deal with some of those things. But the way that we feel, we can still relate to people in that aspect. So we try to get our guests and our visitors to think about what was the experience like for the people who gathered at Prophetstown? Why did they come here? What was the motivation behind it? And um, what was going on in the area at that time to drive people to a place like Prophetstown? So we really try to work with people's experience, exposure, and emotions. Um, so it's it's very multi-layered in how we try to connect with guests. So yeah, it's a long answer, but that's cool. Yeah, that's awesome. What unique features or characteristics make Prophetstown State Park stand out compared to other parks? I feel like you were just talking about this one. Wow. Yes. We focus a lot on the unique habitats in Prophetstown. So prairie is one of the big ones. Really unique to have prairie in the state of Indiana. But we are at the eastern extent of the Tallgrass Prairie region. 
So historically, there were prairies in the Tippecanoe County area. Uh, in fact, Tippecanoe County had maintained a lot of the prairie region that was found in the state originally. So we do a lot of restoration, which makes the park really unique in that um, we're still adding prairie back in. We're still maintaining our prairies and maintaining our habitats and um, changing parts of the park to um, go back to what's more historically accurate for the area. The prairie is kind of our main habitat, but we also have the Wabash and Tippecanoe rivers at the park. So the Tippecanoe flows into the Wabash River at Prophetstown. You can actually walk out to the confluence. I don't know if you've ever done that before. It's kind of a neat experience because uh -huh. you can see the water mixing together. Yeah. Like the Tippecanoe is a little bit more um, green and the Wabash is a little more brown, but you can actually see the waters mixing at the confluence. Um, so we have uh, the riverside within our park. There's quite a bit of the Wabash and a little portion of the Tippecanoe. So we get to talk about how the rivers impact our region, how they shaped our um, terraces at Prophetstown and how they brought, um, you know, with the glacial meltwaters brought many unique gravel and rock features into the area as well. So we like to talk about our rivers. We also have wetlands in the park, specifically a fen, so an FEN fen, which is a mostly alkaline or pH neutral water system. They typically exist um, at the base of hills in gravel heavy areas. And they're really unique because they maintain water year round. Uh, we don't have very many fens left in Indiana. And the fen at Prophetstown is one of the largest remaining in the state. So it is actually part of a nature preserve within the state park as well. It's a really cool habitat. I like to talk with our guests about how the rivers and the wetlands are connected in that the rivers flood. They always have and they always will, we hope. <laughs> and the floodwaters will back up into the wetland. And the wetland can actually help with flooding reduction by absorbing some of those waters. And our fen is a great ecosystem for um, peat material to gather as well, which can be very absorbent. So it's really unique to see how those habitats work together. And of course, with each habitat comes its own host of plants and animals that call that area home. We've got our prairies, we've got our rivers, we've got our fen, and we do have a little bit of forested area too. Kind of our motto for the park is history where the two rivers meet. So we have um, some unique habitats that come together. So while we're at the eastern extent of the Tallgrass Prairie region, we're also right at the cusp of the eastern hardwood ecosystem. So there's a lot of habitat change within the park, which is part of what made the area so desirable for people because you had so many habitats in one small geographic region. That meant that you had many things available for survival, for food, for access. I mean, rivers alone are great connectors to um, get to other places for travel. So we like to say that, yeah, history is where the two rivers meet, which is Provincetown State Park. Awesome. Um, can you share a bit more about the history of Provincetown State Park and how um, that's changed over time. Sure, yeah. I'll start with Prophetstown State Park's namesake. So the Prophetstown Settlement was a Native American settlement that was there from 1808 to 1811. It consists of about 3,000 Native people from at least 14 different Native American tribes. And they gathered at Prophetstown to stand up for their culture and their way of life and to resist European encroachment on land that Native people had inhabited for centuries. So it was one of the largest Native American confederations that ever gathered in one place. And they gathered under the leadership of the Prophet or um, Tenskatawa. My pronunciation is not 100% accurate, unfortunately, but 
uh, he was a Shawnee spiritual leader, and he also worked with his brother Tecumseh. Tecumseh is a little slightly better known. Again, Shawnee pronunciation, I'm not very good at pronouncing those names exactly, but um, they were kind of the two main drivers of the Prophetstown settlement. And the Prophetstown settlement did end with the Battle of Tippecanoe with um, William Henry Harrison and his soldiers and the um, warriors of Prophetstown uh, getting into that altercation, which ended up with um, the native people of Prophetstown leaving the area. And the next day, the settlement was burned by William Henry Harrison and his men. So that's a really unique feature of history because some of the events that took place at Prophetstown sparked like the War of 1812, for example, it was very significant historically um, to many different Native people. But that 1808 to 1811 time period doesn't uh, the 1808 to 1811 time period isn't the only significant time period for Native people. The land that is today Prophetstown State Park has over 10,000 years of Native American history. So we know that Native people have been using that land and continue to use that land. Um, so we like to interpret that and are very hopeful that we can continue doing a better job with that interpretation. So we are um, working towards better partnerships with many of the Native American tribes who have connections to the region that is today Prophetstown State Park, because it's really their story. It's not my story. I don't have any known Native American heritage in my family, um, but as the interpretive naturalist at Prophetstown State Park, it is part of my responsibility to make sure our visitors know the significance of the land and they know the namesake of the park. So the, the history is a really big focus for us, not just Prophetstown, although the park's named after that, um, but we like to talk about how um, many groups utilize the land, traveled through the land, raised families on the land. Um, it has been a significant space for many people for quite some time to get into the actual history of why we have Prophetstown State Park today is uh, around the 1980s. Uh, they were looking for a space in Indiana to put kind of the final state park. So the goal for Indiana State Parks was to have a park within an hour of every Hoosier. And this northwest central portion of the state did not meet that goal. If you look at a map, a lot of our beautiful state parks are in southern Indiana mm -hmm. and this northern half of the state, they're a little more spread out. So in looking for a location for a state park, uh, our legislators and folks within the Department of Natural Resources were looking for a space that had good recreation potential, uh, had a unique habitat, unique habitats that may be in need of protection or restoration and a space that had a historical element or an important um, piece of Hoosier history. And so they landed on this area and it was a, a, a hotly uh, contested decision to put a state park in this area. It was actually put up to public vote for um, folks in the region to say if they wanted a state park or they didn't want a state park here. Because in order to make a state park, there was imminent domain involved. People had their homes, their farms, their families on the land that is today Prophetstown State Park. So as you can imagine, people had a lot of feelings about it. If you were asked to leave your home, I think you'd have a lot of feelings about that too. So uh, we today interpret some of that story as well. Um, you know, I think uh, in retrospect, it's really nice that we have this kind of last piece of the state park puzzle. We now have a park within an hour of every Hoosier living in the state because of Prophetstown State Park, because it exists. And it's been cool to see the park develop. Even I can remember from my first time visiting Prophetstown to today, how different it looks, how different my experience has been there. Um, the trails that have come to be and the habitats that have been restored. 
I think it'll be a really interesting thing for us to look back, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 years from now and see how people feel about the state park now, now that they've been able to see it. Do they feel differently about it? The Prophetstown is a really unique state park in that we're the youngest state park in Indiana by birth, is what I like to tell people. We have some uh, DNR properties that have kind of switched from forestry to state parks or uh, moved from one division to another. But Prophetstown State Park opened to the public in 2004. So we're a pretty recent state park and it's really cool to come and visit. I always tell people when you come back, see what's new, see what's different, because things are always changing at Prophetstown. Nice. Um, oh. How do you address environmental conservation and sustainability in your interpretive efforts? In quite a few of our programs, we want to send people home with actionable things they can do to make a difference. I think specifically when we talk about and interpret muscles, our muscles are really important in the Wabash and especially the Tippecanoe Rivers, which are in the park. But not a lot of people know much about muscles. They're not particularly charismatic or cute. If you think of like getting somebody to care about a river otter, they're kind of fluffy and they run around and they play and they talk to each other and they're very animated. Muscles are also a living creature, but they don't do that. They're not fluffy. They don't run around and play. They kind of scoot along the bottom of the river very, very slowly and they help filter our water. Well, filtering our water is super important, but they're not so cute to look at. So not everybody knows about muscles or has heard about muscles or has even seen a muscle um, because they, we don't have as many as we used to have. So we will do programs where we talk about muscles. We have some muscle shells that we are permitted to use in our programs. So we can show people like, these are beautiful. This is a living creature. This creature also has a role in our environment to play that helps benefit us as humans and benefits our habitats. Um, but we want people to know what they can do that's gonna make a difference. So you can, you can talk all you want about, oh yeah, prairies are great, or rivers are great, or mussels are great, but how do we encourage people to conserve those things and to care about them? So we talk about you know picking up litter and making sure that if there's a flood in your area, if you live near a river, that you can pick up trash after that happens so those um, trash items don't become problems for somebody else. That helps the muscles. Um, one of the big things that I even learned when I moved into this area is when you're canoeing or kayaking and the river is low, pick up and carry your canoe or kayak because scraping along the bottom of the river displaces muscles, which sometimes will stay in one spot for uh, very long periods of time, like years. So I learned when I moved here, like, oh, when I canoe and kayak, I need to pick my boat up. I don't want to just scrape across the bottom. Not only is it bad for your boat, it's also bad for the muscle population. Mm -hmm. We try to send people home with actionable things they can do. When we talk about prairie restoration, um, Sometimes of the year, we have uh, really generous donors from the Cardinal Native Plant Nursery, or it's called Stantec um, Native Plant Nursery now, who provide us with native seed packets that are native to Indiana. So we can send folks home with those and say, you can plant plants in your backyard too and help our pollinators and creatures. So we try to encourage people to take actions in their own lives and in their own backyard or their own neighborhood that are gonna benefit the world around them. Can you share some of the challenges and rewards of working as an interpretive naturalist? <laughs> sure, yeah. I'll, uh, I'll start with the rewards. I think it's really cool to see people grow, especially when we have visitors who keep coming back to programs that we have at the park 
it's cool to see their perspectives change or um, sometimes I'll go out and lead a program and I'll get really excited about a plant because I'm like, oh my gosh, look at this really cool plant that's growing over here. And then, you know, one of the kids who comes on those programs will be out hiking with us on a different program and they'll see a plant and go, oh my gosh, this is really cool. Come look at this plant. Can we figure out what it is? It's cool to see others get excited about the things that excite you and to be able to pass that on to other people so that they can recognize the unique features of a particular animal, plant, or event in history. Um, to get them building their knowledge and excited about learning is really fun. Um, so I like that aspect of it. I also like, um, I can remember during COVID, for example, we had a lot of new users at our park. People hadn't come to Prophetstown State Park before. And I talked with one couple that told me when Prophetstown State Park was put up to a public vote in the early 1990s, they voted against Prophetstown. They didn't think it was a good idea. But during COVID, they started coming out to the park and they got a very different perspective of the park and it totally changed how they felt about Prophetstown and they realized that it was beautiful and that it has been a good thing at least for them and a good thing for some of their friends in the community um, to have that space to come out to during COVID. So it's cool to talk with guests like that and to see how some perspectives have changed over time. Um, so I think, I think those are some of the rewards is seeing that thought process and th- seeing that change that people make. Those are really exciting things. Challenges. Um, <laughs> I think I speak for most people in government in that working in state government can be challenging. It can be rewarding, but it can be challenging in that the, the process of government can be slow. I think a lot of our guests and our employees, you know, we we want things to happen quickly. We want to see quick change. We want to see quick development. And that doesn't necessarily happen in government. It's a it's a slow moving machine. And there's a reason for that, but that can be frustrating at times. Uh, I will also say that there are always a million things to do kind of how I talked about we every day at work is different. Um, there are always things that come up that uh, can change the course of your day and can change your plans. And so for me, I'm kind of a plan-oriented person, a schedule-oriented person. It can be hard for me to adapt, but it's been a good challenge in being adaptable and pivoting and changing what I thought my day was going to look at to something different. Um, there are lots of things that come up in parks at different times that, yeah, your day is just not hundred percent planned out. And so scheduling and getting some of those important things like your emails done in a timely manner can be really hard to do just because of the nature of the job. So I would say those are some of the challenges, but, um, I think everybody feels those working in government. Mm-hmm. It's not yeah. unique. Definitely. Um, Is there anything else you think I should have asked you about or anything else you wanted to share? So at Prophetstown State Park, we've got, um, we have about 2,300 acres of property right now, but the park is still growing. So eventually the final footprint for the park should be close to 3,000 acres. And within the park, we have a lot of opportunities for our guests. So we do have camping available. We've got electric and full hookup campsites, which you can tent camp on those sites. I have tent camped myself. Uh, All of our sites are level with gravel pads. So a lot of people look at that and say like, I don't want to put my tent on there. I actually find it to be a little bit more comfortable as long as I have a good sleeping pad under mm-hmm. me. Uh, we don't have the issues of like a tree root <laughs> bumping right into the swallow of your back. Um, so we have a really nice campground. 
We've got um, several miles of paved multi-use trails. You can take bikes out, rollerblades, uh, it's wheelchair accessible. We like to do guided bike rides at the park, so those are really fun to use our um, paved trails for. Then we also have natural path trails throughout the park. So there's about four natural path trails with a couple miles on each of those that's not like intense hiking most of Prophetstown is pretty flat but you get some really beautiful views of the prairie and you can really see the transition of habitats while hiking at the park so we've got some um, unique areas to check out we also have an aquatic center so in the summer that's a good way to get people in through the gate because uh, our aquatic center is all landscaped with native plants so once we get them into the aquatic center we can kind of show them how beautiful the prairie really is and my staff and i will also go out during pool checks and we do little programs so the kids have to get out of the water or everyone visiting has to get out of the water and uh, we'll run out and take a turtle or a snake with us and just interpret really quick for those 15 minutes um, to show people another side of Prophetstown besides just swimming and the lazy river and the pool. Um, so we've got great recreation opportunities in the summer on hot days like today. And uh, we also work with a nonprofit. So we have the farm at Prophetstown, which is a 1920s working farm that focuses on homesteading and sustainable agriculture. And they're really great partners, partners of ours that also helps interpret the history of the land at Prophetstown. So of course, Indiana is named after the Native Americans, the Indians who lived in this region and who still live in the region today, that the farm at Prophetstown really talks about how there was a big shift in the use of land in this region. Uh, 1920s kind of marked the invention of the plow, and so agriculture changed a lot in the 20s. But we're really happy that we have a working relationship with them to show people the full picture of the land at Prophetstown. You know, it involves people for centuries, um, whether that looked like European settlement or it looks like native settlement. Uh, this land is historic and significant to a lot of people. So if you come out and visit Prophetstown, there are many things to do and take up your time. Uh, we do have a small visitor center as well, where we have kind of our mini nature center for right now. We have a lot of plans for the future of the park. So there will eventually be uh, a bigger nature center that folks can come and visit. Um, we're hoping to have a larger campground at some point too. So there's lots of future plans for Prophetstown, which is why I encourage people keep coming back because you're going to see something different each time you visit. I have not camped or been to the aquatic center, but those are there. on my list. Yes. I was just thinking, I wonder if I can convince my family to camp in August. <laughs> I will tell you that our campground fills up like six months in advance to the day for weekends. Okay. If you camp late during the week, you can probably get in, but it's a really popular campground, which is good. And it's kind of small, right? It is. Yeah. yeah, we only have like 110 campsites, so that's pretty small compared to some of our campgrounds and state parks are huge. So 110 is not, not yeah. massive. But yeah, there are some people who work at Renew that love camping out there. Yes, yeah, so, awesome. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. This is the portion of the podcast where we learn about our guests outside of their profession. Jenna shares her adventures, what she's been reading lately, and the last thing she Googled. Getting to know you, getting to know all about you. What's your favorite outdoor activity or hobby? Ooh, I would probably say that I enjoy hiking, a little bit of backpacking and camping in there. Those are probably my favorite things, but that's just because there's so much you can see when you go out. So I, I do that while I'm also bird watching and looking at plants. And, yeah. Nice. Yeah. If you could travel anywhere in the world, where would you go and what would you do there? There's a lot of places I want to travel. Um, I think the most recent one I've been thinking about a lot is Ireland. I really want to go to Ireland. 
it's just it seems beautiful i've got some family heritage in that area so i i would like to go there yeah great yeah what's the best book movie or show you've recently enjoyed oh man well since we were talking about the Barbie movie. I did see the Barbie movie. I thought it was great because I will also tell you, Park Ranger Barbie is in the Barbie movie. Really? She's in the montage at the beginning. Nice. And I was so excited because I didn't think she would be in it. And I saw her for like, you know, 0.2 seconds and it made my entire day. Cause I'm like Park Ranger Barbie and me are the same. Is that like a Barbie that you had I, or? No, they came out with her as a you can be anything Barbie. So I got her for Christmas as an adult. She's in the box. She sits on my desk at home. So that was, I thought the movie was really good and I keep thinking about it, which yeah. to me is like, I like things that make me think. Mm -hmm. um, but I also like reading. So one of the more recent books that I read was called The Radium Girls. And it was about the women who painted dials. The Yes, with the lip pointing and ended up getting radium poisoning. It was a really fascinating and well-written book. So it was, I'm sad, but mm -hmm. learning about that history when it was not all that long ago, mm -hmm. I find that stuff cool. Wasn't that, was that supposed to be like kind of like a, like a posh job to have? It was supposed to be really cool. Yeah, it was supposed to be like higher end because they marketed radium as being really good for you and like having all these health properties. And then the women were like, why are we? teeth falling out that doesn't seem great and they're like you know you're fine radium's so healthy keep doing it so reading the book was really fascinating because it actually focused on specific women and their story rather than like just the general experience it told the story of individuals that sounds cool yeah i'm gonna check that out yeah it's a good one Update, our local library, the Tippecanoe County Public Library, has this book, and I'm reading it. It's fascinating, so thanks for the rec, Jenna. What's the most adventurous thing you've ever done? <laughs> These are questions. <laughs> most adventurous thing I've ever done? <laughs> um... So I'm not going to say I'm like a huge risk taker necessarily, but I think by some standards, people would say some of the hikes I've taken are adventurous. It's like I've hiked into the Grand Canyon and back out, which my asthma was like, don't ever, don't ever think about that again. Cause yeah, that was, that was rough. And I've hiked, um, Angel's Landing at Zion National Park, which is like really beautiful overlook but the trail is like chains on the way up and it's like one way, but there's scary traffic. Yeah. And so it, it, a lot of people would say like, Oh, that's spooky. But to me that was just hiking. So I don't feel like that's super adventurous. Maybe I castrated uh, goats on a, on a Navajo farm. So I, that was kind of adventurous. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> I guess that would maybe be, what I would normally pick. Nice. <laughs> What's your go-to comfort food? It was something I made recently. I made some zucchini bread. And zucchini bread always slaps. It's so good. Yeah. Love zucchini bread. So, yeah. That has been my recent, like, every morning. Got a nice hunk of zucchini bread to get me through the day. Mm-hmm. Okay, I think this is another hard one. Maybe not. Oh, jeez. Maybe you think about this kind of thing. Oh, jeez. If you could meet any historical figure, who would it be and what would you talk about? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I'm going to have to think about that one. I have a local person because I think she would be fascinating. Jean Stratton Porter. Nice. So Indiana author, environmentalist did a lot for conservation, super into wildflowers. I feel like she was a really rocking lady. She was way ahead of her time. She was super independent. Like she was married and had a partner, but they were super independent of each other even. And that was way ahead of the time. I feel like she'd just be a really fascinating person to talk to. And she did so much for at least the region she could help. And, you know, her home is still preserved as an Indiana State Historic Site. So I think she would be really cool to get to gab with. 
Yeah, great answer. Thank you. What is the most memorable concert or show you've attended? I'll go with another recent one. Um, we went with some friends to Symphony on the Prairie, which is at Connor Prairie in Fishers, Indiana. And we were able to watch the Indiana Jones movie Raiders of the Lost Ark with a live symphony playing all what? the music. And I thought like, oh, this is going to be really weird or distracting. Like, I forgot the symphony was there. They were so good. Like, they kept in time with everything. My mind was blown. That sounds amazing. It was very cool because it was like I had to pinch myself and be like, no, this music isn't in the movie. Like, there's, there's human people sitting on stage playing it, and I'm listening to it. Wow. And we had, like, a big old bucket of KFC. So it was very, you know, nostalgia for me because I grew up doing that kind of thing. So it was, it was cool. It was really fun. That sounds amazing. Yeah. I want to do that. You should. It's a great time. What is one talent or skill you wish you had? I wish I was good at art, like drawing and painting. I enjoy doing those things, but I'm not particularly skilled at doing them quickly or well. I can, I can like sit and paint and I'll get something that looks, you know, halfway decent, but it, I won't be satisfied with it. It'll take me like two hours to be like, yeah, okay. I can do it with this tiny little painting, you know? Um, and we've been dealing with that recently because we're, we're talking about doing a nature journaling program at Prophetstown. And so there's part of me that's like, I wish I was better at art so I could feel like I could teach more things. But uh, I do enjoy looking at art. I enjoy watching people do art and I enjoy doing my best. I was looking at that little nature journal you have at the nature center. Oh, yeah, the tiny guy? Yeah. yeah, they're pretty cute. Ooh, do you have any hidden talents or surprising hobbies? Well, some of my friends thought it was really surprising that I was into the Barbie movie. Because they were like, you don't seem like that kind of girl. I was like, well, listen, Barbie's empowering. Um, probably for my... It's like a hidden talent I knit, but I don't feel like that's quite so secretive because I like to say I'm a grandmother because I knit, I have cats, and I enjoy watching birds, so I'm already ready. Mm -hmm. um, but knitting would probably have to be my, my hidden talent. Not a lot of people know that. Yeah. What kind of stuff do you make? I make a lot of dishcloths. Cool. <laughs> I try to do simple things because I, like I can knit while I... Like, if I go to conferences, I bring my knitting with me because it keeps me focused a yeah. little better because I have something to do with my hands. And I can, like, take a break and write notes if I need to. Um, yeah. So I do a lot of, like, short, quick things so I don't have to nice memorize patterns. That's wise. Yeah. Yeah. What's the best advice you've ever received? I'm just – I have a lot of recent tidbits. So I would say – uh, some of the best advice I received recently from another mutual local friend of ours would be from Mary Cutler, who's a Tippecanoe County um, park naturalist. She was she and I were talking about um, like preparing programs and preparing experiences for our guests, and she told me not every single thing that you do has to be a mountaintop experience. You think about when you're going on a hike, like you might be going from, um, you know, point A to point B, but there's a lot of really nice vistas on the way. What keeps you up at night? Mm. Probably true crime documentaries and podcasts that I shouldn't be listening to that late in the evening. Probably those. What is the last thing you Googled? Can I look? Yeah. Okay. It was probably something weird. <laughs> I Googled uh, the Indiana Department of Transportation's website. They have something called TravelWise because every single road in our area is closed. So I wanted to know when they were planning to reopen those things. Nice. So I, I did get an answer. Okay, yes. that's good. Yeah.
This podcast is produced by me, Amanda Estes, stormwater educator for the TCPWQ. Special thanks to Scott Allersmeyer for the excellent recording setup, Jimmy Katrin for the hype and encouragement, and Austin Wiesler for coming up with a podcast name and slogan. Rain drains bioswales. Whether it's clean, green, or flows downstream, we talk about it. If you have questions, suggestions, or want to learn more, visit us at tcpwq.org or call 765-807-1817. You can also find us on Facebook at TCPWQ and at Typic New Water on Twitter. If you made it this far, I'm treating you with a blooper reel. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Sorry, I already have a question. Yeah. Where I'm from, uh, like where I grew up, yeah. or where I work. Yeah, where like where you grew up. Okay. Born and raised. Okay, perfect. All right. I warm up my vocals by singing in the car on my way to work. Do you have a favorite salty snack? The first thing that came to mind is a salty snack that's both sweet and salty, just caramel bugles. What? Yeah, they're real good. It's like a niche snack. That sounds really great. I'm a big fan of like novelty stuff. So when there's like a special flavor or something, I'm like, I'm going to buy that. I have to have it. Sure. And then it might be gross, but sometimes it's good. You try it out. Have you done the bean boozle thing? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That seems like that'd be up your alley.